1 John chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, as we consider what your spirit is saying to the churches, by the pen of the Apostle John, What your spirit is saying to us, we pray that you would examine our hearts and minds according to your word, that you would change us. You would give faith to those who do not believe, that you would cause in those who are weak a great strength and trust in your son, that you would cause in those of us who are strong in Christ, that we would continue to be humble in knowing that he is our only hope, that we would care for those around us well. We pray that you would cause in our congregation a deep abiding understanding that Jesus is our sure foundation. He is the anchor for our soul, that he is our assurance before God. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So, Here's really the question I want to drive at as we jump into 1 John 5, 16 through 21. What is your assurance? What is your assurance for your own life and for those in your church? In other words, what is your personal assurance for your own life and then for those in your church? When you think about what makes you confident, when you think about what makes you confident that you are spiritually alive, and well, and that you need not fear being lost, what do you think of? What comes to mind that gives you confidence? What's the foundation of your confidence? And the reason I ask this question is because we are watching people, and I know you know them, I know them, we are watching people in life all around us, whom we love, walk away from the Lord into all manner of sin and idolatry and false doctrine. We're watching it all around us all the time, aren't we? What's your assurance that you won't be one of them? See, that's the question, isn't it? Is it your sound doctrine? You think, I'll never do that because my doctrine is squared away. Is that your assurance? Is it your good works? I'll never do that. Look at how I serve the church. Look at the way I honor the Lord. Is it your commitment to the truth? 
Man, I will lose friends and family over the truth. I have great assurance I won't walk away. Is it your generosity? Look at how I open my wallet for other people. Look at how much I give to missions in the church. Look at how much I help my neighbor, my friends. I'm generous. I have great assurance. I must be in the faith. Is it your boldness or your ability to hold your tongue? You know what? I will stand up and speak when other people won't. I should have assurance. You know what? I hold my tongue when that guy won't. I have great assurance. Is it your church attendance? Man, I am here every Sunday. I go to small groups. I am on the ball. If the church opens the doors, I'm there. See, when you think about what makes you confident, let me push that a step further. When you think about what makes you confident, not just about yourself, but what makes you confident about our local church, that our local church is alive and well, and that you need not fear us going astray as a church, what do you think of? What do you think of then? When do you have assurance? What gives you assurance about our local church? Not just your own life, but about this group of people. We're, we're watching churches close in America in record numbers. More churches are closing every year in America than are opening. We're seeing churches decline in number. We know them. We can name churches around our own community. We see it, we're seeing on the decline. We're seeing churches lose any real concern about the truth and preaching the word. And there is a famine of biblical preaching in the land, and we're watching people drink from some pretty nasty wells just to try to quench their thirst, aren't we? We're seeing churches fall apart. We're seeing pastors fall into sin. So what's your assurance this won't happen to sovereign grace? See, what's your assurance that if this particular local church dies... The Lord will continue to have a people here who honor his name, whom you can leave this church with to plant a new church. What's your assurance that that's going to happen? Is it your confident about the fact that this is a confidence of the fact this is a really generous church? This is an incredibly generous church. Radius International, most of their budget is floated by this church and the, as far as the giving that comes in. A couple of their missionaries funded by this church. Other missionaries funded by this church. This isn't a very big church to be funding all that. It's a pretty generous group of people. I haven't even got into the other ways in which you're generous. Is that your confidence, though? Is that your assurance that we'll stay true to Christ? Is it that we're zealous about sound doctrine? Man, our pastor knows Greek and Hebrew and he's in the word and, and we have new pastors being trained who know the same thing and they're reading systematic theology and they're reading historical theology and they're reading church history and, and they're reading their Bibles and they care. Is that, is that what your assurance is in? Is it in the fact that we're growing numerically? All these churches are dying and we're growing. People are getting saved. People are getting baptized. The money, is, the money, as far as the budget, is growing. We're looking to build a facility. Is that your assurance? Is that we're sending out missionaries? Man, we're going to send out seven long-term, full-time, cross-cultural missionaries in the next year. Think about that. 
That's astounding. Is that where your assurance is? What is it? Is it that we're bold? That we have some solid pastors? See, this question matters because John is deeply concerned. John as an apostle is deeply concerned that the church he's writing to has assurance, has confidence in the Lord, that they have a, a joyful confidence in the Lord. And the ultimate foundation of our assurance as individuals and as the church is what John has been driving at in the letter of 1 John. For this entire letter, he's been driving at this issue. I want you to have a joyful assurance and confidence in the Lord. That's what I want for you. So where is that assurance and confidence found? And he drives us back over and over and over again to this letter. If you've been through the series, you know to the fact that your joyful confidence, your assurance is found in Jesus. So it isn't found in any of this other stuff. This other stuff may be pointers to the fact that we actually believe in Jesus. Or that maybe you believe in Jesus, or this church believes in Jesus, but at the end of the day, this other stuff is not your confidence. It is not your assurance. Jesus is. Jesus is a steadfast anchor for your soul. Not the relative success of your own Christian life or the relative success of your own local church. Jesus is. And he's, John is driving at that point relentlessly in this letter. Even when he says, I want you to know the right Jesus, and that's going to be demonstrated, by the way, if you know the right Jesus, and confessing the truth about him, unlike the lies about him, and then that's going to be demonstrated the fact that you're trusting in him, which is going to spring forth in obedience to God's law, and is going to bring spring forth spring forth, thank you, in love for God's people. It's going to show up in all these ways. At the end of the day, the, any, the reason that any of that is true is because of who Jesus is. That's your assurance. And John concludes this letter with three final assurances tied to that. So that's what I want to get at this morning is these three final assurances. As a pastor, as an apostle, John wants the church to be assured or confident in Christ. And he ends with three assurances or confidences that they can have because of Jesus. So here's the first one. You ready? There's three of them. Here's the first one. We have assurance that God will answer our prayers to save the brothers or sisters in Christ among us. You hear that? Here's an assurance. We have assurance that God will answer our prayers to save the brothers and sisters among us. Look at 1 John 5.16. I want to walk this out with you. 1 John 5.16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Now, He's asking what? He's, when he's asking, he's praying. This is a context of prayer. If you remember in verse 14 and 15, he's saying that this is the confidence that we have toward him or toward Christ, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. In other words, we have great confidence in prayer, and now John wants to narrow down something that he needs you to pray for. You hear? You guys following? 
great confidence to come in prayer, but now I want to na- narrow it down. Here's your responsibility, but it's followed by a guarantee or an ins- assurance, a confidence that comes with it. Here's your responsibility. If you see your brother committing a sin, if you see them committing a sin, now I'll deal with this other part in a minute, ask. He shall ask. That's a very strong verb. It's like pleading with God beseeching God. It's not just like asking like, oh God, that guy, could you help him? It isn't nearly that nonchalant. This is a getting on your face and begging the Lord. For what? He shall ask and God will give him life. You see your brother committing a sin. You ask God for that brother and the assurance you have, the confidence you have, is God will give that brother life. Now there's some strange stuff in here for us because he gives these qualifiers. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin and then he says this, the ones you're supposed to ask for, those brothers committing a sin not leading to death. Oh my gosh, how do I even know what that is? There's a qualifier for me. I see my brother committing sin. I want to get on my face and ask God for him and God will give him, a lo- give him life. But wait a minute, it has to be a sin not leading to death and why do you call him a brother and say he doesn't have life? Another problem, isn't it? I'm asking for my brother. If anyone sees his brother, but then look, he shall ask and God will give him life. Well, if he's a brother, doesn't he already have life? And then he goes on to qualify again, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. In other words, he'll give life to those who you pray for who are committing sins not leading to death. Thank you, John. That is all very perfectly clear. We're so well helped by that. Then he goes on, by the way, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, in other words, I'm not telling you to pray for those who are committing the sin leading to death. Just so we know, this isn't like in Jeremiah 7 or 14, where God commands Jeremiah, I'm commanding you, do not pray for this people. It isn't like that. He's not commanding you not to pray for them. He's just narrowing his, his command of prayer requests. You follow? So I'm not saying you can't. I'm not saying don't pray for them. What I'm saying is I'm not talking about praying for them. I'm talking about praying for this group. He's not saying you're forbidden from praying for that group. He's just saying, I want you to focus on praying for this group. So who is this group? How do you delineate the people who've committed the sin that leads to death, the brothers who've committed the sin that leads to death, from the brothers who've committed the sin that doesn't lead to death? Because you're supposed to pray for these brothers. He's not commanding you to pray for them. You can, but he's not commanding you to. He's commanding you to pray for these brothers. And he's assuring you that if you pray for these brothers, God will give them life. You fall in the difficulty? There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing, verse 17, is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. But wait a minute, because Paul says that the wages of sin is death. So doesn't all sin lead to death? Well, yeah, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and they died both physically and spiritually there. Paul tells us very clearly that we are all destined to die because of the fall. We all know that. And he also says that we are all in our natural state spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2. So if you are physically and spiritually dead as a result of sin, every sin kills you spiritually and physically. Then what does he mean when he says all wrongdoing or all lawlessness or all unrighteousness is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death? Does John not agree with Paul? 
Does John not agree with Jesus? Does John not agree with pretty much the entire testimony of Scripture? So what's going on? See these major difficulties that come up in this passage? And you know what happens? Scholars write all of this lengthy treaties on these and get you all tied up in knots, and by the time you're done, you're not sure you know what in the world is going on here. So let's, let's, and I'm not trying to take a shot at scholars, this is a difficult passage to unwind, admittedly. So what's going on? Let me try to take a shot at these two major difficulties in this passage. Here's the first one. What does he mean when he says brothers to whom God will give life? Because we don't normally think, when we think about brothers and sisters in Christ, we normally think of what? People who are spiritually alive. How can John tell us that if we see a brother committing a sin not leading to death, and if we pray that God will give him, a lot, give him life, how is he a brother if he does not have life? And that's tied, I'm going to unwind that in a minute, because it's tied to the second difficulty in the passage. Sin that's, sins that lead to death versus sins that do not lead to death. What, what's he talking about here? What, what's he talking about? If the wages of sin is always death, physical and spiritual, and if he has proved the fact that, by the way, sinning leads to death, because what, what's the case? If I see my brother in sin, I should pray for him that he might have life. So in some way, that brother's dead. But he's not committing the sin that leads to death. you guys follow that? Go back to that verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask... And God will give him life. Well, why does he need life if he didn't commit a sin leading to death? You follow the problem? So in some way, that brother's dead, but he's not committed the sin that leads to death. You you guys see why you get all twisted up here? And that there is a sin that leads to death. How can a brother need life? So to answer this, here's what I'm going to do. I want to get you back to what John is doing pastorally in his letter. Because the problem that often happens to us is we get so bogged down in a particular text that we miss the overall context. And I've driven you guys at this again and again and again. Context is king, right? Context is queen. Context is prime minister and president and whatever. Context is pretty much everything, and Scripture always interprets Scripture. And so we have to say that the Scripture is in eternally coherent and consistent, that God never disagrees with himself. And so if we see an apparent disagreement, then we better work it out because the problem is likely in us and not in the Bible. You follow? And the context will help us with that. So what's the problem? Let's not get lost in the details of this particular verse for a minute. Let's stop and back up and ask, what's the problem in the church to whom John is writing. Now you say, well, I don't know who the church is because this is a general epistle. In other words, he's writing it, there's no direct audience. He's writing it in the context of the first century to the church at large. But as we've walked through this letter, we've shown over and over again that the problem is that there are a group of people in the church who are following heretics, false teachers, out of the church. And they're following a false teaching about Jesus and a false way of living with and for Jesus. And these people have split the church. There's a massive church split. This is most likely talking about what's happening in the church of Ephesus because of a man named Serenthus in the first century. Irenaeus tells us that that's who John is opposing. Irenaeus is essentially a grandchild of the apostle John. Um, In other words, he's 
he's only removed by two guys. One guy followed John, and then Irenaeus followed that guy. And Irenaeus says that's the problem in 1 John. He's probably fairly accurate. The details of the text seem to bear that out. That what's happening here is a split that's happened in the church. That's the context. Now look at 1 John chapter 2, because I'll show you that that is indeed the case. 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 18 Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Listen, we're in this eschatological, this, and I know it's a big word, but this end times hour, this age that we're in, is an age of difficulty. It's an age in which people will oppose the Christ. It's the age from his resurrection and ascension between that and his return. And we're in this last hour, this last, these latter days or last days. We're in them, and what we're seeing in them is antichrists. These people who are teaching a false Christ. These people who are opposed to Christ. We're experiencing them all around us, children. You see them. Now, John is speaking specifically of the antichrists that have come into the church here and led people astray. He goes on to say that. We know that verse 19 of chapter 2. They went out from us. See, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Now, how do we know? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, we've lost people from our church. We've watched them walk away after these antichrists, these false teachers. We've watched them follow them out. And their going out has proved that while they were among us, they were never really of us. While they were professing brothers who lived with us, who worshiped with us, who were baptized with us, who participated in the Lord's Supper with us, who served alongside of us, who sang with us, who heard the word preached with us, who loved us and we loved them. When they left, they demonstrated they were never really of us. When they followed that false teacher, they demonstrated that they were never really of the truth. They certainly appeared to be but they weren't. Now, if false teachers have split your church, I want you to get to the first century church that's receiving this letter. I want you to get into their mindset. If false teachers have come into your church and split your church and led professing believers, visible members of your church, people you love, People you've worshipped alongside of. Maybe people you thought you evangelized and that you saw baptized and that you prayed with and for and who prayed with and for you, who you encouraged and they encouraged you, who you lived alongside of in life. People like the people sitting around you right now that you love. If false teachers came in and ripped them out from you, What do you think your state of mind would be? How crushed do you think you'd feel? How how concerned do you think you might feel about what's happening next? How much of you would question, gosh, they seemed like the real thing. What happened? What happened? 
I thought they were my brothers and sisters in Christ. How could they walk after that ungodliness? Man, when, when no one else was there for me, that brother was there for me. How could he walk away from Jesus? That sister came along and ministered to me when no one else would. How could she walk away? Am I even saved? I mean, if they're not, am I? If this happened to them, could it happen to the rest of us? And John comes in and says, listen, I want you to understand this. These folks who are a part of your visible church, who look just like you, whom you call brother and sister, they never really were. For if they had been, they wouldn't have left. That's the stark reality. Do you hear that? What does it mean to look like the real thing, to profess to be the real thing, and then to walk away? John calls it apostasy. Jesus calls it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says it's the unforgivable sin. It's the sin in which the truth about Christ has been presented to you, where you've seen God's great work in your life, where you may have tasted of the heavenly gift, you may have shared in seeing prayers answered, where you've heard that God has done this incredibly loving, gracious thing for you in sending Jesus for your sins, where you have been exposed to God's word and sat under its teaching even powerfully as you've seen it change people's lives, and you see all that, and you watch it all before you, and you experience it all, and then you say, I don't believe in your Jesus. I do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible And John tells us that at that moment, you have called God a liar. You have blasphemed, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit. You have committed apostasy. These false teachers have denied the true Jesus and rejected the true true gospel, and they have taken down some of the people in the church with them. That's what's happened. That's the context that John's delivering this in. From the perspective of the church, these were our brothers and sisters in Christ. They have walked away from the gospel. They have walked away from Jesus. They have committed apostasy, and they are lost. And John tells us, I want you to understand, brothers, in the midst of the pain of seeing them walk away, in the midst of the confusion of wondering what's going on with them, the reason they left is because they never really were of us. They never really were. They may have appeared to be, but they were not. They were among us, but they weren't of us, for if they were of us, they would have remained with us. The fact that they left the true Jesus and the true, true Jesus and the true gospel means that they, were not, that they were not only spiritually dead all along, but that they have now put themselves beyond the hope of salvation through a full-scale rejection of Jesus. They are utterly, utterly lost now imagine you're John's audience and you have seen your friends 
Those you imagine as your brothers and sisters in Christ walk away from the gospel for a false Messiah. I guess the question is, wouldn't you be brokenhearted? I would think you would be, right? If the Spirit's in you, you love these people. You're brokenhearted about this. Isn't there a part of you that would wonder, who's next? Who's, who, I've just lost people I love to a false gospel or false society. Who's next? What, am I next? If that person walked away, will I? John assumes that as Christians, they love their brothers, so they're in pain. They are reeling. They're wondering if they're next or if someone else is next. They're looking around at the other professing believers in the body and wondering if they're strong enough to stand or if they'll also be lost. They're wondering that. And John says, 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 In this context, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. What's he talking about? Pray for your brothers who you see in sin. Pray for the people in your church whose lives seem to look like they may not be saved. Pray for those professing believers who appear to be spiritually weak and who may be spiritually dead. And here is our assurance, God will give them life. They may be in sin, but if they have not, if they have not committed the apostasy, committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if they have not rejected Christ outright, if they are still here, pray for them. God will give them life. You don't have to lose any more of them. Hear that? There's your assurance, church. You've seen people walk away. You've seen people reject Jesus. You've seen it happen. And John is saying, church, church, you don't have to lose even one more of them. Pray, and God will give them life. Beseech him. Here's the assurance. You don't have to lose one more. Get on your face and ask God for the weak and sinning brother. What do you do with weak, and, with weak brothers and sisters around you? Maybe that's a question I should ask you. What do you do with the weak brothers and sisters around you? Because that's what he's talking about when he says a sin not leading to death. These are people in your church who you see committing sin, but they have not yet committed apostasy. They have not yet committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They have not yet outright rejected Jesus and walked away from the church. They're still among us. But you're fearing that soon they may not be among us, just proving that they never really were of us. You follow? The worst confirmation you could ever hear, by the way. And he says, pray for them. Be on your face. Beseech God for them. So here's the question. What do you do with the weak brothers and sisters around you? Do you critique them and worry about them? Do you grow impatient with them and talk smack about them? You know, you're just going to reap what you sow. Can't wait. You finally deserve this. I'm not sure he's really a believer. I'm going to get together with some of my friends. You know, Jason, do you think this person's really a believer? I'm not sure they're really a believer. And you know what? They're going to reap what they sow. And I'm so sick of them. I've grown impatient. You know, let's, let's just talk about 
the fact that we are frustrated beyond belief and that we just can't, we're just beside ourselves with, with impatience with this weak brother or sister and, and I kind of hope they just walk. I'm sick of their abuse. I'm sick of their behavior. I'm sick of their sin. I just wish they'd walk. Can I tell you, to, to my shame, to John's shame, to Jason's shame, we've had those conversations. We've had to repent of those conversations. What do you do? Or do you beg God for them? Do you ever beg God for them? See, that's the nature of the word ask. You're beseeching God for them. You get on your face and say, Lord, Lord, save this person. Give them life. We don't want to lose them. We don't want to see them commit apostasy. They're weak. I need you to work. The assurance John is offering is that while you have, may have lost many friends to apostasy, you do not lo- need to lose any more. So you may be reeling that you've seen people walk away from the Lord and you may be fearing that some others around you are particularly weak and may not be believers and could walk away anytime confirming the fact that they were never of us. But you can get on your face and beg the Lord to give life to these saints. Say, are they saints? I don't know. They look like it. That's the point, don't they? They're here among us. As far as we know, they're brothers. As far as we know, they may not be brothers. What we do is not get together to critique them and try to make an assessment as to whether we think they're brothers or not. We get on our faces and beg God to strengthen them and give them life. You can ask him and he'll give them life. Here's your responsibility. Love your brothers and sisters in the church well enough to get on your face and plead with God for their lives. Are you begging the Lord to give life to the weak in our church or those who you fear may not be saved in our church? Is that what you're doing? You might have to join some of your pastors in repentance if you're not. Are you on your face asking him to give you those who are weak and may not be saved? Are you pleading with the Lord? Think about the children who flood down our aisles. When you see them flood down our aisles, do you beg God, save those kids? Don't let one of them be lost. Charles Spurgeon, in teaching a, who's a 19th century Baptist preacher, in teaching... Um, his Sunday school teachers about children shares the story of Elisha when he throws himself onto a dead child and pleads with the Lord to give the child life and the Lord gives him life and Spurgeon says, that child was physically dead and God gave him life but our children all around us are spiritually dead and how many of us are throwing ourselves upon the Lord begging him to give them life? You know your children are not are not needing you to convince them of the truth through intellectual arguments. At the end of the day, that is not their problem, and it's not an intellectual one. At the end of the day, your kid's problem is not, ultimate problem is not whether or not you've been the best parent. 
the end of the day, your kid's ultimate problem is not whether or not they've been taught the best Sunday school lesson. Do they need to hear the truth? Yes. But at the end of the day, the reason your children will walk away from Jesus is because they are spiritually dead. And the only way that's going to change is you proclaim the truth and you get on your face and you beg God to save them. And he will. Listen to the affirmation, beloved, in verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. What is his will? He's declared to you his will. He sent his son to save, to seek and save those who were lost. So what is your job? Tell them about Jesus and get on your face and pray. God's will is to save them. This is the great assurance. If you ask him to give life to these visible saints who have not yet committed the sin that leads to death, he will do it. That's a great assurance, isn't it? Think if you're in a church, you've lost people. What greater assurance could you have than if you cast yourself on the Lord and ask for the salvation of these folks around you who you see are weak, who your fear may be lost, that John comes in and tells you if you do that, God will give them life. You don't have to keep losing more. Sometimes I wonder if our children walk away at 18 years old from the church and 85 plus percent of them because we just fail to plead with God for their lives. Because somehow we've bought the lie that if we just parent right, we just get in the right church, we just do the right things, just convince them with the right arguments, they'll be saved. They won't, folks. The Spirit needs to do a work in their hearts and minds to give them life. I wonder if we see people walk away from the faith in huge numbers, churches closing, because we're just not on our faces pleading with the Lord to give life to people around us. I'm not telling you this to guilt you. John's not telling you this to guilt you. He's telling you this to assure you. You no longer have to watch that travesty happen in front of you. You can get on your face and beg God to save these people, and he will. And let's not just pray for folks, let's pray with them. That's the first assurance of the last three assurances John gives us. And I've preached a whole sermon already. Let me, <laughs> let me try to move through the next two quickly. Just really quickly. Second, we have assurance that Christ will keep us from falling into Satan's grip. We have assurance that Christ will keep us from falling into Satan's grip. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God, that that means God has given you rebirth. Jesus talks about being born again. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's a present tense verb. In other words, it is not your pattern to be given over to unrepentant sin. It's like saying this. We know that everyone who's been born of God lives a repentant lifestyle. Not that they live a sinless lifestyle. That's not what John's getting at. 
He's saying they live a repentant lifestyle. They don't keep on sinning. It isn't just how you characterize their lives anymore. They belong to God. You see them striving for holiness, repenting of sin, etc. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he, now listen to this phrase, he who was born of God protects him. Who's he who was born of God? It's an interesting state. Who protects you if you're born of God? Well, this goes back to John 1.18, where, G- where John says of Jesus, he is the only begotten, the only born of God. Hear that? He's the only one begotten of God. It's the same phrase, speaking of Jesus. He is eternally begotten. Now, I don't have time to get into the eternal begottenness of the Son and the eternal generation of the Holy Spirit in the, inside the Trinitarian dynamic. We're not going to work through that this morning, okay? But... The idea here is he's talking about Jesus. Jesus protects you. And the evil one does not touch him. It's a little weak there in the wording. It gets a grip on you, grabs you, and pulls you out and hurts you. The evil one cannot get a grip on you and pull you away because Jesus protects you. He keeps you, that word protects us, keeps you or guards you. We know, verse 19, that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See, we don't lie in the power of the evil one anymore because we're from God. We've been born of God. Jesus keeps us. He protects us. He guards us. But the world lies in the power of the evil one. We don't. They do. Jesus, the only begotten of God, has you in his grip. He's holding on to you, and Satan can't take you down. The world, the flesh, and the devil may beckon you, but you have been born of God and you are walking in, his, in repentance and the evil one has no power over you, over you because Jesus protects and guards you and keeps you. Isn't this what Jesus says in John chapter 10? The same author, I, just a different book, in the Gospel of John in chapter 10, listen to what Jesus tells the disciples in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Never. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, He who is begotten of God protects you. He keeps you. He guards you. Satan cannot touch you. He cannot take you out of his grip. He's given you eternal life, and Satan cannot take it from you. John chapter 17 and verse 11, this drives home again. John 17 and verse 11, Jesus is praying for the apostles specifically. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, praying to the Father for the apostles. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them, same word, keep them, guard them in your name. Father, listen, I'm going to the cross. I've kept them. But while I'm on the cross suffering your wrath, I won't be able to keep them anymore, so you keep them for me. Hear this prayer? Think about this. Jesus has been keeping them. He knows he's going to be absent from the ability to keep them. And so he asked the Father to keep them in his place. How gloriously good is that? Keep them. 
in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, verse 12, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may, be, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your, world, your word, sorry, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Father, keep them in your name. I've kept them while I was here. Now I'm departing. Keep them. Romans 8, what, is, what are we told by Paul? Verse 34, that, that who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. More than that, Christ Jesus is the one who died and who raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Because Christ is keeping us. We are God's. The world is in the grip of Satan, but we're in the grip of Jesus, the only begotten. We're in the grip of his father. Satan cannot snatch us away. This ought to give us great assurance. Do you see what John is doing here for the church as he closes this letter? Pray for the weak brothers around you. God will give them life. Don't fear that Satan will take you out. He cannot. Jesus has his grip on you. Satan can't touch you. Now the third of John's final assurances we have assurance that Jesus has given us understanding. We have assurance that Jesus has given us eternal life. Look at verse 20 and 21. And we know, 1 John 5, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Who gave you understanding? The Son of God did. You didn't have it without him. He gave it to you. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him. We're united to him through faith. By the spirit, we've been united to him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ. You're in the son, Jesus Christ. He, now here's a statement about his divinity. He, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. You want a statement about Jesus' divinity? There it is. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Weird way to end a letter, isn't it? And if I was writing a letter to my wife and at the very end of it I said, I just wrote this nice letter and at the very end of it I said, don't commit adultery. (laughs) Chad. (laughs) Be a strange way to end a letter, wouldn't it? It's essentially what he does here. Don't commit idolatry. Keep yourself from idols. End of the letter, John. Right? What's he doing? He's saying you have Life in the true God. You've been united to his son, Jesus Christ. Why would you ever run after any idols? Keep yourself from those. God, the son, gives you life. The idols give you nothing. They just break your heart over and over and over again. They hold out for you temporal promise. You serve them and somehow you'll have some kind of happiness or joy, whether it's success or pleasure, or whatever it is, but at the end of the day, they will break your heart because you will die. So keep away from them because you have life in the Son of God. What more could you need? You have this great assurance. The people around you are falling apart. 
your brothers and sisters in Christ, get on your face and beg God for them and he will give them life. It seems like the world and the flesh and the devil are assaulting you to a degree that, that you wonder if, if you will walk away yourself. Don't worry, Jesus has his grip on you and Satan can't touch you. I feel the pull and the allure of worshiping my children or my spouse or my success or my reputation or my money. You have life eternal in God. Cast that stuff away. That's not going to save you. It's going to break your heart. Don't commit idolatry. Trust in him. Listen, here is our, herein is our assurance, sovereign grace. We've been saved by Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. He has opened our minds to the truth. He has united us to himself. He promises to give life to those among us for whom we ask. He is actively guarding us until that great day. Satan cannot stop him and the world cannot overthrow him. He gives eternal life. He is the true God. No one can ever take it away from us. He is our assurance. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed with his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that you would cause in us a great joyful assurance in your Son, knowing that he is the true God and eternal life and we're united to him, that as those who are his, born of him, he guards us and keeps us for that great day. We, we, we need not fear the world, the flesh, the devil pulling us away from him because he has hold of us. And that when we see weak and struggling brothers and sisters around us cause us to fall on our faces in prayer for them, having this great assurance that, that you will give them life. We're thankful for your son, Jesus. Pray that we would rightly give thanks for him and pray for him, or pray with, to him, sorry, giving thanks for him every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.